I released the book of basketball in 2009. I swore I was done. What else was there to say? The book was 704 pages long. I figured out the secret of basketball with help from Isaiah Thomas, then used it to rank the top 96 players of all time. I blew up the Basketball Hall of Fame and turned it into a five-level Egyptian pyramid. I figured out the 33 greatest what-ifs ever. I solved every MVP debate. I made the case for Russell over Wilt. I explained why MJ was the greatest ever. I wrote hundreds of pop culture references, at least 250 inappropriate jokes, and God knows how many footnotes. I even drove to San Diego for the epilogue to spend time with Bill Walton. And when the book reached number one on the New York Times bestseller list, that was all I ever wanted. I was done. I swore to myself I would never do a sequel. Well, I kind of lied. So much has changed in the NBA these past 10 years. I couldn't help going back. Who could have seen the three-point boom coming? Curry's Warriors going 73-9? and nine? The Harden trade? The player empowerment era? The process? Advanced metrics? The decision? Cleveland winning a title? I repeat, Cleveland winning a title? Well, why write a sequel when I could turn that book into a living, breathing podcast, something that juggled interviews and pyramid podcasts and rewatchable game podcasts about famous games? What's my top 100 now? What's my pyramid? What's the new biggest what if of all time? Could the 86 Celtics have handled the 17 Warriors and all those threes? What did I learn from spending so much time over the last years with people like Bill Russell, Magic Johnson, Kevin Durant, Jalen Rose, Isaiah Thomas, and so many others? Think of it as my basketball book coming to life in audio form, reinvented, reincarnated, retooled, recreated for 2019 and beyond. It's the book of basketball 2.0. It's launching on November 6th. Presented by State Farm. See you there. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, his Halloween costume is grown man crying to welcome to the Black Parade. It's Andy Greenwald! Wow, look at the way you always wrap your arms around all the salient points of the day. That's just great. <laughs> Did you want me it's to say great. as an adult, you were going as an adult man tapping out as Ben Simmons choked him out on the floor? <laughs> That's how I feel on the inside. I, there's a couple things at play here. This is the thing where I'm from my uh, recording studio, which, as many people know, is a um, office parking lot in Culver City. We're going to talk about the streaming wars, right, and all the different entrants into it and all the stuff going on right now and the, the Star Wars news and all the exciting things. But I also think that it's worth noting that uh, it's Halloween. And I know you guys have a podcast that you do for Spotify. It's the hottest take, right? Yes. That's like this, like a quick bite opinion podcast. Can I audition for that right now with my probably, it's not my hottest take. It's my most tepid take because it's the most grown ass man, old person take that I have. Yeah, I can hear Spotify printing money right now. Go ahead. Would you? Which, maybe we could see if we could sell this podcast to Rhapsody or, or some, other, <laughs> yeah. some other defunct music service, kazaa. Um, it's just that, Chris, you and I are, are gentlemen of a certain age. Wasn't Halloween for kids when we were kids, or did we just not see the grown-ups dressing up? Uh, 
I feel like I was never that participatory in college and early 20s Halloween shit, no. but I do remember it being like something of a of a thing when we were like first in New York, wasn't it? No, no, I mean when we were actually children or oh. adults doing this. Because I don't think they were. I just think that our generation and maybe slightly older than us just wouldn't give it up. So what are you seeing out there on the streets? I just, nonsense. I'm seeing nonsense. I mean, right now, from my vantage point in the parking lot, I can see, well, I see a lot of Teslas. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't see any people right now. But I, I just, I find it exhausting. I don't, you're, what are you wearing right now? I bet it's not a costume. I'll tell you what I'm wearing. I'm wearing that, yeah. that orange flannel that you love because I'm trying to celebrate oh. the autumnal spirit. I, I, I'm wearing a pumpkin colored sweater as well. Yeah, see? I'll be honest. So what are we talking about? You and I are just two guys who love rolling in a pumpkin patch. Yeah, but I'm not like wearing a minion costume. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, or I'm not like, like sexy minion right now. And yes, I'm intentionally using universal IP because I'm a company man of nothing else. Uh, that, that's all I'm saying. Do you, do you want to do a little, just do we do a little side jag over here to discuss the fact that My Chemical Romance are reforming for a show in December? I went to one year of journalism school, Andy. I think, I think I went to half a year of journalism school. And, yeah. uh, you know, the inverted, it's like the inverted pyramid where you lead with the most important things. So, so far we've <laughs> uh -huh. made two obscure, uh, an obscure sports reference to anybody who's yeah. tuning in to hear about Star Wars Game of Thrones. They don't know what we're yeah. talking about with Ben Simmons. Then we made some comments about being old men who don't understand uh, sexy minions. Now let's talk right. about a defunct post-emo band that only a sliver of our audience knows. And then we'll talk about Game of Thrones and Star Wars. You can make it sound like we're doing something wrong here, but I didn't have to go to journalism school to know that if I were to have told myself 20 years ago that it would be a paid job for me to stand in a warm California parking lot shouting at you through a cell phone while drinking a sparkling water. Like, that's a win for me. I feel like journalism school, forget it. This is all going great. <laughs> Go ahead. Let's talk about My Chemical I, Romance. I almost named the brand of the sparkling water, but you don't like doing that unless they're sponsoring us. I know that. That's also some, that's something you learned in business school. What, don't make me sound like I'm some centrist. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> look, 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 Buddha Judge, all right? I know there's a lane in the middle, in the podcast lane. Um, I know I don't, we don't need to talk about it. It was just exciting news, right? I mean, uh, I, I have uh, to say that um, I was walking by the podcast studio earlier, and mm -hmm. uh, Bobby Wagner, who works on a, a bunch of pods here, Big Picture, MLB Show, a bunch of them. He's actually been on the watch to discuss Top Gun Two, so he's a, yeah. he's an expert in sound recording and aviation. And he Great. was on the phone, I believe, with his sister, and yeah. he seemed like he was shaken. And he was just like, dude, I just slacked you. And it was just a link to My Chemical Romance's reunion show at the Shrine in L.A. on December 20th. Yeah. Well, I don't know what the Venn diagram is of people who are excited about this, but should I? I can, it's you. I can, you, you. It's you and Bobby Wagner. <laughs> I didn't slack, but I, is, is this a flex or is this journalism school? I texted Gerard today in response to this news, Gerard Way, the singer of the band, and he's very excited. They are, they, they, they've, been, they've been playing together a little bit getting the friends and family, and they just wanted to do a show. There is no album that's about to drop. There's nothing else for now. They just wanted to do a show, and I'm going to fucking be there. I'll tell you that much. Are you really? I wear my sexy, I'm going to wear my sexy minion costume. <laughs> I'm going to be there. I don't think anything can, happen, can top seeing my chem at Emo's in Austin. 
yeah. during a South by Southwest that I want to say is like 05, but I'm not positive. And they played yeah. like a really small show at in Texas during the day. And Gerard was wearing a bulletproof vest and a leather jacket. Yeah. And they played Helena and the entire place, I thought like there was an earthquake happening. It was so good. I, in the, again, you know, we are two distinct individuals with subjective memories of things, but I have a very keen memory of having the advance of Welcome to the Black Parade um, in like 06, I guess it was, and you coming over to my apartment, and I feel like you sat on like a a, a chest, like a low <laughs> chest that I had in, in my bedroom, because uh-huh. I guess that's where I had a CD player at the time, and I feel like we were sitting, our proximity was like De Niro and Pacino in the diner scene in Heat. And I just played like the sharpest lives. And I feel like we left our bodies for a second. I don't remember anything else about it, but that that's a really good band guys. And I I'm excited if they do come back, I feel like they would only come back for worthwhile creative reasons. But I do think that that's a band that celebrated the scene that they were part of and were coming out of with the makeup and the emo stuff and all that. But I also think that they were really carrying the torch for a certain strain of just theatrical fucking rock and roll music from the 70s that they all celebrated and loved and I feel like taken out of the context that people may have carried them in or lumped them into at the time those records are ripe for for reevaluation and appreciation by people and I feel like maybe the audience is ready for them yeah and you were way. you were pretty into their late period stuff right because I was more of a three cheers for for Sweet Revenge guy Sweet Revenge yeah. I love Danger Days it's a great record yeah anyway it's very exciting but now I'm supposed to, I guess we should talk about Star Wars. <laughs> whatever. All right. You want me to break it down? You want to give me, I'll give you some, some bullet points here. So yeah, let's do a layup line. Monday after we recorded, uh, it was announced yep. that Benioff and Weiss and Lucasfilm, they, they kind of came out together and announced a conscious uncoupling. So we had been, we had been Beautiful. patiently awaiting a new trilogy of Star Wars movies from Benioff and Weiss, obviously the people behind Game of Thrones they were slated, I think, for 2022, 2024, and 2026. So these were imminent somewhat. Uh, and it was announced that the Thrones duo would no longer be working on the proposed Star Wars trilogy. And um, that trilogy was apparently going to be about the origins of the Jedi Order, which I did not know. I thought it was maybe like Knights yeah. of the Republic or something. But apparently the thing that they were most interested in was sort of what, how did Jedi start? Uh, Benny F. and Weiss, for their part, said that it ultimately came down to scheduling. And in August, I, you know, as many people know, they had signed a $250 million deal with Netflix. That <laughs> just sounds mm-hmm. like the numbers are just add up right, just right. You know, they're just, that's sound accounting. <laughs> uh, they signed a $250 million deal with Netflix at the end of the summer. And uh, according to a statement, they said there are only so many hours in the day. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter uh, they reported that Kathleen Kennedy, who sort of runs overseas Star Wars for Lucasfilm, was unhappy w- with the Netflix deal that Benioff and Weiss had signed. And um, that's around in the summer was when their relationship maybe sort of took a turn. There's been a lot of speculation about whether or not Benioff and Weiss would have been able to like fully give their attention to Star Wars or whether Netflix gave them $250 million to go work on something for Disney for six years, whether that was ever going right. to work. It's also been noted multiple times that this is not the first departure of filmmakers from the Star Wars world since Kathleen Kennedy took it over back um, almost, what, I guess almost 10 years ago now almost, right? When this sort of Uh, got... Well, well, I don't know if she took it over 10 years ago, but they've been putting Star Wars movies out for seven years now. She she took over when the Disney sale went through. She was put in as president. And so that directly preceded 
Um, that was probably 2013, I guess, because then they, right. they, they, you know, they put the J.J. Abrams movie into, into pre-production then. So, so yeah, a couple so, things here. A couple, so uh, the other filmmakers to have left projects at Star Wars, Josh Trank, obviously, Lord Miller left Solo, Colin Trevorrow was supposed to direct what became Rise of Skywalker, J.J. Abrams replaced him, yep. uh, and obviously also Rogue One had some issues with uh, Gareth Edwards being replaced by Tony Gilroy. So a couple things at play here. One would be, um, let's just make sure that everyone understands the chronology and timeline here. There was a bunch of stuff online suggesting that Disney did this in response to the savage tweet storm that erupted after Benioff and Weiss made a rare public appearance talking about Game of Thrones at a convention or an event. Yeah, it was like a, a, um, thing, a convention in Austin of some kind, a TV convention. L- let's be clear. These two things have nothing to do with each other. I'm sure all of your tweets were very sick burns but they did not cause Disney to fire these guys from uh, Star Wars movies. That yeah. did not happen. This, this, would have, this probably started happening a long time ago, and this conscious uncoupling only became public when it did, I guess, because this is when it broke, or this is when they were ready to move on, or maybe people were asking and they were going to run the story, so they had, to, they had to confirm it. I'll also say, in uh, Benioff and Weiss's defense, I think in out-of-context, tweet chain quoting selectively cherry picking quotes from them in an event the tenor of which we don't know and you know we don't we don't know what was being said in the room what the tone of it is is not really helpful way to indict people creatively the way it's been done you know because i think they said a couple of things like what to me sounded like very natural self-deprecation where they're yeah, like it we sounded didn't like really they were being we were very self-effacing yeah they were saying they said we don't know why george r, r. martin gave us the chance i mean look I, not to turn everything into an I statement, but like I a hundred percent will say, I can't believe how lucky I am that the MSNO wanted to let me make a TV show. Like that is a normal thing to say when you feel humbled and grateful. And that makes sense to me. And they're also correct in, in talking about themselves and that they hadn't made a TV show before. And there was a big learning curve. So anyway, separate and apart from that Twitter storm, these are unrelated events. What I wanted to say was, I think I mean, I don't, not just me, but I think many people were extremely skeptical about these movies ever happening anyway. You and I had a good conversation about a month and a half ago about the state of Star Wars in general and how it's much more rickety than it may appear to be, considering how prominent that franchise is in our cultural imagination and how once the the Skywalker thing is over with, it's really unclear what they're going to do next. And you're starting to feel that more and more keenly as potential projects start to fall away and the picture gets murkier and murkier. Yes. Business-wise, I think it's important to say, before we get into like the what are they doing story-wise, these are not... To say that these movies are going away, nothing is being taken from them, right? I don't think they were paid to produce a trilogy of films and somehow this is, they've, they've ruptured the deal. It kind of feels like they were hired to develop a pilot and the network decided to move in another direction. We'll be talking about that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But one of the key differences between the way Kathleen Kennedy has run Star Wars and the way Kevin Feige, for example, runs Marvel, and you know, his name's gonna come up again in a moment too, because it seemed like he was being brought in to help run Star Wars. Now it seems like maybe he's just doing one movie, so that's all a little bit unclear. But what I was gonna say is what Feige does so brilliantly is he grabs the release date and announces a project. So people are excited about Black Panther, right? Or about Captain Marvel or about whatever else they've got coming up. Then when it, when it's appropriate and the deals are squared away and he's committed and everyone's bought into the vision, then he announces the creative team. One thing is leading the other. What Star Wars has been doing, because the future is so deeply unwritten for that entire piece of IP 
is they're just like publicly auditioning talent, saying, getting kind of way out in front of the horse deer or the weird space horse that they're riding in the new movie trailer. And they're saying, yeah, we're going to get um, the Game of Thrones guys are going to do a trilogy and uh, Ryan Johnson's going to do a trilogy and the Marvel guys are going to do a trilogy. It, none of these things are necessarily going to happen. They're kind of announcing development deals, which feels very premature. Think about the fact that we don't know what any of those movies mean. The assumption was because it's names that people like or trust creatively with the word Star Wars attached to it, that it's all going to work. Well, in this, the way franchise films are made today, it doesn't work like that. And we're starting to really see the repercussions of that of that decision-making now. Yeah, and I think we're at just like a really crucial point for both Star Wars and Marvel, and that they're mentioned in the same breath, not only because Kevin Feige may be working on both soon or is working on both, but obviously also because they share a corporate uh, a corporate overlord in Disney. Um, and Star Wars is coming to the end of this Skywalker saga, but specifically this trilogy of films that have, have, have come out over the course of this decade. And I think that after Last Jedi and after the kind of storm that was caused, this kind of like online fandom response to that, sh- to that movie, which I thought was completely ridiculous, uh, you know, I wonder whether or not there was a little bit of trepidation on the Benioff and Weiss part. Not not necessarily because of like what happened with Confederate or the fact that their their comments at a television convention got put through the Twitter Twitter washing machine, but more because like do these guys really want to get into another wor- world that is so wholly owned by its fandom? You know, I mean if they have a 250 million dollar deal with Netflix, maybe life's too short. And maybe they were, they're like, you know what? We wanted to make this Jedi's the uh-huh. beginning of the Jedi Order, but it just doesn't feel like it's going to be, it's going to get a fair shot. It's not going to get a fair shot from Lucasfilm and it's not going to get a fair shot from the fans. So I don't know. I think that the easy way to read this is like Kathleen Kennedy fired another filmmaker or another pair of filmmakers. But I wonder whether or not these guys were like, eh, you know what, man? I, I think I'll just go make yeah. some shows for Netflix. No, I also think it's a question of what do they think they're signing up for and what kind of bill of goods are they being sold? And if they met with them, because, you know, all companies take meetings all the time and, you know, meeting with someone on Star Wars or meeting with someone on Marvel, like these meetings just happen for people who are enormously famous and successful, like Benioff and Weiss, and for just, you know, executive story editors on other TV shows, because you want to know what's out there and you want to know what takes people have on things and maybe something turns into something else. And it does seem like, in the pure blue sky generalities of some of these meetings, there was a, either a fundamental miscommunication or there was a shifting, the, or the ground shifted. What I mean by that is a lot of these Star Wars projects seems like they were sold to the creator as we would love your sensibility to play with this corner yes. of the universe that's interesting to you. Yes. Lord and Miller, bring your zany, one-liner, improvisatory yep. sense of humor to Solo. We want, right, so they met with Lord and Miller, for example, and said, we want Lord and Miller in our world. What's the place for that? And they were like, well, we like Han Solo because he makes jokes. And they were like, awesome, perfect. But the cold feet and the corporate whatever and all the other pieces moving around here made it seem like, oh, no, 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 this is a iconic core character. We need to treat it with the same reverence in the mythology as the mythology that, that went into every piece of everyone's childhood. And so all of a sudden, it goes from Lord and Miller to Ron Howard trying to make it a serious movie and it just it just totally fails so Benioff and Weiss you're so good with this sort of swords and sorcery storytelling maybe the origins of Jedi and the force and like that's a similar world for you to play in over here while we do all the other things we're doing and then you look at the shifting fans and it's like oh no 
we don't actually know what we're doing when right. we're done with resurrecting these characters. You're going to have to be the thing now. And that's a very different project, certainly in expectations, certainly in terms of pressure. It doesn't surprise me that they wouldn't want any part of that. Yeah, I think that it's also a really interesting moment where I think you see Mandalorian and the Rogue One spinoff and Obi-Wan all go to Disney+. And through all three of those titles, five years ago, I would have been like, so that's a movie, right? That's definitely going to be a movie. Mm-hmm. Is this story about a bounty hunter or an Obi-Wan prequel or even I, I, I'm still sort of mystified about the Rogue One spinoff as much as I'm excited to see it because I really like that character. And the Rogue One has mm-hmm. kind of gone through a critical and fan reappraisal, I think, over the last couple yes, of weeks has. because we've had these like, what's your how, rank all the Star Wars movies? And Rogue One is kind of like high up there for a lot of people, including myself. But it's the same situation for Marvel in this post-Avengers world where it's like, I think they're offloading a lot of the sort of legacy characters uh, onto Disney Plus and they're going to kind of experiment and go forward and try to build up a new group of people with the movies going forward. I don't really know what Star Wars does because Star Wars ultimately became a lot more aspirational and a lot more, I I almost want to say like kid-friendly in the last, these last three movies. I know The Last Jedi was definitely like darker than than Force Awakens and uh, had a lot more adult themes, but I feel like we always sort of criticize or Star Wars itself as a franchise was always criticized for corporatizing movies in a way. And I don't know that that necessarily came true until the last couple of years. It's only recently that we have Galaxy's Edge and that we have this kind of like 360 kind of marketing of it. I wonder whether or not that's what changed. And that's where the Benioff and Weiss medieval politics of the Jedi Knights doesn't fit in. It's partly that, but I also think it's, just though they're important to talk about in terms of global IP franchises and billion-dollar whatevers, comparing Star Wars and Marvel isn't fair because they're at very different points in their life cycle, although that's about to be no longer the case. And what I mean is, for the last decade, Marvel has been the story. It is making the memories and making the cultural and nostalgic footprints in an entire generation of people all around the world for being a thing. Yeah. This is what there are twenty year olds who only like basically grew up on Marvel movies. Now but Star Wars for thirty years has not been about the thing. It's it's not been about the story. It's been about the story about the story. Yeah. And that's a different level of remove and it comes with a different set of obligations and responsibilities and expectations. Marvel is about to shift into that. Marvel is every you know, okay, there's gonna be a fun Doctor Strange sequel and everyone wants to see Natalie Portman be Thor and Taika Waititi have fun with that again. There's plenty of things to look forward to, both from a creative and financial perspective. But the thing, the spine, that will be the thing that will not only make theme parks around the world for another generation, but also will be the mainstream big budget touchstone for a generation of kids is now done. And it ended with Endgame, right? Yeah. And so then it becomes about what you're doing, not just on its own merits, but in relation to the work that came before, in relation to everyone's memories and expectations and the legacy and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Marvel being directly a comic book story might be better suited to that change because the one thing about comic books is that everything changes all the time, but nothing ever changes. So the idea that there being someone else under the mask for Iron Man or Captain America, like that's a story that happens every three years in the comics. It is a naturally regenerative medium. But for Star Wars, being like, can we tell more stories in this universe? What are the corners of it, the possibilities of it? You know, is there a story behind every door at the Moss Eisley Cantina? Well, it turned out in terms of a billion-dollar global franchise, no, there isn't. 
There's mm-hmm. only ever been one story, and it's the same story. But now they're admitting that story is done, and that puts them in a very different position. And I, I don't know who's going to pick up the mantle. It's, I think it's very telling that in a lot of this reporting this week about the Benioff and Weiss trilogy, there's, there's these just almost <laughs> aching, melancholic references to J.J. Abrams, who will now be going on to focus on his Warner Media quarter-billion-dollar deal or right. half-a-billion-dollar deal as his like curatorial instincts, right? Well, like, I think that he was viewed as like an incredibly faithful servant to... See, this is the, the funny thing. I, yeah, but I think it's... Uh, to me, he was a faithful servant to the Lucasfilm idea about what these movies should feel like. And I mean that specifically, Lucasfilm as we know it now, not George Lucas. I think that there's a lot of talk about returning to Lucas, returning to A New Hope, returning to the feel and the look of those earlier movies and to capture some of the spirit of them. And to me, Abrams is really way more about the hyper... The pacing is much faster. The cutting is much faster. The camera moves around much more. There's a lot more earnestness to it, I think. And that's what I that's what I kind of associate with Abrams's feel of it. And it's interesting that there's, mm-hmm. like you said, that kind of like longing for JJ not to leave. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Star Wars. Jedi Fallen Order, the new action-adventure game from Respawn Entertainment coming November 15th. Jedi Fallen Order is the Star Wars game that you've been waiting for. Taking place between Star Wars Revenge of the Sith and Star Wars A New Hope, you can play as Cal Kestis, a Jedi Padawan turned fugitive. After narrowly escaping Order 66 and the Jedi Purge, you're on a quest to rebuild the Jedi Order, wield a lightsaber, hone iconic force powers, and complete your training to become a powerful Jedi all while staying one step ahead of the Empire. Become a Jedi on November 15th in Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Available on Xbox One, PS4, and PC. Rated T for Teen. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Watchmen. Nothing ever ends. Rolling Stone calls HBO's Watchmen a dazzling reinvention, a reimagining of the world originally seen in the groundbreaking 1980s graphic novel of the same name. Damon Lindelof's Watchmen is set in an alternate history of present-day America, where the lines between vigilantes and mass crime fighters are blurred, and the only true superhero is nowhere to be found on Earth. Stylized, darkly funny, and profoundly human as its characters struggle with personal and ethical issues. The series stars Regina King, Gene Smart, Don Johnson, and Jeremy Irons, and features music from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Watchmen is spectacular. Equal parts insightful and exciting, Hales IndieWire. Catch new episodes of Watchmen every Sunday at 9 p.m. only on HBO. You know, this, this is a good enough segue as any to talk about Thrones. So... You throw Thrones into there, which is arguably one of, you know, along with Star Wars and Marvel, one of the four or five biggest properties in pop culture. And they all kind of remind me of, you know, they are all in a similar state where you've got this thing that everybody cares about a lot. And everybody's trying to figure out how much can we squeeze from it without, without diluting what makes it special. And... What can we do that's different that makes people still, you know, still continue to engage fans and engage new fans, hopefully, without getting too far away from what people actually like about it? And I think that's been the major case for Star Wars where, you know, you have this tension of like, well, we want to have the guy 
who directed Monsters and Godzilla to take on Rogue One because he just understands epic scope. But at the end of the day, he didn't really know how to tell the story we wanted him to tell. And mm-hmm. we're kind of seeing that with Thrones now. So obviously, I think people are probably pretty well versed in what's happened this week. But just as a, you know, to review, the Jane Goldman prequel, uh, which was, I think, known as The Long Night or George R.R. Martin called it The Long Night. And some people called it Blood Moon or maybe it was actually called Blood Moon, but it was supposed to star Naomi Watts and Miranda Richardson. And it was set during the Age of Heroes, which is thousands of years before the Game of Thrones show that we know took place. They shot a pilot. Uh, Miranda Richardson, Naomi Watts, like pretty big stars. They shot in... S.J. Clarkson, a great director. S.J. Clarkson, a really, really fine director, helmed it, and it is not going forward. Now, you can read around online. uh, Michael Oziello had a piece about how there had been creative differences, how HBO hadn't been happy with the pilot when they originally saw it and sent Jane Goldman sort of back to the drawing board to recut it. The Game of Thrones, the series that, you know, wound up becoming the biggest television show of all time famously reshot their pilot and recast some roles in the in the almost entirely in the yeah. show. So it's not like this is unheard of in this world, but they HBO announced that they are not going forward with this show. And right on the heels of that, announced that they will be going forward with a show called House of the Dragon, which is about the Targaryens, and it's much more closely associated with George R R Martin who's working on that show with a guy named Ryan Condal who worked on Colony on, I think I was on Sci-Fi. and USA. On USA. And House of the Dragon also will come courtesy of Miguel Sapochnik, who directed some of the most iconic episodes of Game of Thrones. And uh, according to Entertainment Weekly, the show is going to focus on the period that leads up to and eventually includes Dance of the Dragons and the Targaryen Civil War. So Dragon's back. Yeah. What do you make of all this? But also, like, how do you think this ties into everything that we're talking about here about the maintenance people have to do on their, on their IP? I think this is so fascinating. I just, I think this whole thing, watching this unfold this week, the timing, the guesswork, putting the pieces together as to what was really going on here. And what I, what I honestly feel more than anything else, and I know this makes me sound like Emperor Palpatine here, but I feel fear. Hmm. I just feel fear in all of this. Because for as much confidence as we're, we're meant to be reading and hearing and understanding as these major, major companies, all of them really, the major media companies left standing, whether it's Apple, Universal, or whether it's um, Warner, they're all pouring out outlandish sums into streaming services that they're hoping we're all going to buy, right? With big names and big IP and big splashy deals. The numbers are insane. And this week, um, HBO Max, a lot of this news came around the unveiling of HBO Max which is Warner's entry into the field. There's a lot of swagger and confidence, but underneath it all is fear because the entire industry is shifting in real time and shifting dramatically. No one really knows where dry land is. And the one thing that people feel like they can count on, the sort of the big ships they feel like they can survive on, the arcs, if you will, are these giant world-beating pieces of IP that every company has like maybe one of, right? And for Warner, it is Game of Thrones. Yeah. I mean, the, the fact that they, that HBO stumbled into almost, and again, like you said, they, they almost didn't green like the pilot to begin with because it felt not like the classy New York brand. And then the pilot came in and it was not good. And they spent money, instead of just walking away, they spent the money to fix it and address it. And then it turned into this juggernaut that really kept them afloat in a way. Uh, just in terms of sheer numbers. I mean, HBO always had prestige, but in terms of the sheer numbers and size and reach of the show, 
it definitely helped keep the reputation intact as Netflix began to gobble up the industry around it. Game of Thrones is, is a huge reason why AT&T bought the company, right? So the next steps in it are crucial. So let's go step by step here. Before Game of Thrones ends, um, it's announced that I think they put at least five potential series into pre-production or just the, Yeah, they were basically, I think that they were, they were entertaining the idea of five different stories. Uh, Martin was involved in some of them. I think yeah, this there a, one... there was a Martin and Brian and, and Cogman. Yeah, well, the, and that is House of the show. Dragon. I think Cogman was involved in this and then was, is no longer involved because he now has an overall at Amazon. Right. So the, the idea wasn't that they were necessarily going to make five shows out the gate. It's that they wanted to be prepared and hear a lot of takes and develop and make sure they made the right moves. And so the Jane Goldman one felt pretty interesting um, for reasons both cosmetic and also potentially more than that, right? Like, because a lot of the criticism against Game of Thrones had to do with um, the, let's say, the, the, not the lack of diversity behind the scenes, right? I think it was very telling that they went with a, a female showrunner, that they that the, the lead actors announced were both women, that S.J. Clarkson was directing it, herself a woman. And things that we've heard about this project, you know, neither of us have seen the pilot, certainly, though I would love to, suggested definitely a different take on social politics in Westeros than we had seen previously. And all that sounded pretty intriguing. Yeah, I've read the screenplay for this. I mean, I read the script right. for the, this pilot. And I will say, I, w- I don't want to be unfair by like reading out big swaths of it or something like that because I don't think that that's cool to do to the people who are, who are trying to make it. And, and, and it's not like contextually, it doesn't make sense. But, you know, you, I, what struck me in your what you were talking about was that line about like fear. And I don't I wouldn't necessarily say that there's any fear in the script or that there is any nervousness in the script, but I will say that it feels like it's dragging something behind it. And that's Game of Thrones. We've been thinking and talking mm-hmm. a lot about this relationship in adaptation to the original text with Watchmen, because so much of what Watchmen is doing is, as we're kind of keying off of what Damon Lindelof said, is remixing. And I would obviously, they're completely different things, but you can feel in different parts of the of the long night or blood moon script a kind of like hey like holding this plot back or attached at the hip to this thing is this show that is the reason why everybody's going to watch our show but also something that we're going to constantly have to be servicing and even in stage directions in the script there is like actually a line in one in one place where it's like you know it's it's essentially watchers of game of thrones will be familiar with this thing and it actually says that in the script. So obviously it was something that they had. They felt like they wanted to tell their own story, an original story, a story that I don't think is actually very, very well detailed in the Martin world. So there was a, probably mm-hmm. a lot of like, how far are we going back and forth in terms of what we're allowed to do versus what is gospel? Yeah, canon. And then you get into the whole like, the George of it all, which I, I don't really know a lot about where th- things stood at the end between Benioff and Weiss and Martin and HBO, but I think it's very telling that this Jane Goldman script and this pilot did not go, and the show that George is associated with went straight to series. Yeah. Well, I, again, I don't. I have not even read the script. I don't have any particular insight. I don't have any access to this world. So I want to 
put all the caveats on this and say what I'm doing is really responding to the optics of it. Um, and I think that that itself tells an interesting story. Whether this is an accurate story, I do not know, and I would not want people to take what I'm saying and run with it as if this was um, gospel. But the pieces are there to to put together a puzzle that says this this I, this show, this spinoff that we're talking about that isn't going was simply too different, simply too risky. It didn't have certain guarantees built into it that certain corporate interests, whether they are uh, Casey Boys and his administration at HBO or Bob Greenblatt and Kevin Riley, who are now above him and running the larger company that is running the streaming service, or John Stanky, who is the head of AT&T and wants to protect his investment to make sure that there's sword content, sword and White Walker content on his subscribers' phones for decades to come, that these people were ultimately not comfortable with taking that risk, especially with the first thing back out. And so you not only feel that in terms of Martin's involvement, which obviously made people feel good, it's uh, Ryan Condal who has run a sci-fi television show in the past. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know him, I don't know his writing, but he certainly has the CV that says he has run a show in this world before. Um, and then even past that, you see certain other things like, Miguel Sopochnik being splashily added to the project yes. as a co-showrunner. And which episodes did he direct? Did he direct the most like internal, thoughtful, chin-strokey episodes that appealed to a certain fandom? No, uh-uh. he directed the fucking Battle of Winterfell. Yeah. And then it's about the Targaryens, which means it'll be about dragons. So all of this are playing to a more comfortable, a more safe, or a more easily easily understood and transmitted to a global audience piece of this particular bit of IP. It probably means it'll be a more expensive show, right? If you're starting with the Targaryens, it means you're starting with dragons, which didn't show up uh, on the balance sheet for line producers of Game of Thrones until like season, at a certain size anyway, until season three or four. But I feel like the world we're in, when you look at the price tag of a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie, they would almost rather spend an exorbitant amount of money on dragons. Yeah, on a sure thing. Yeah. Slightly less money, but still a lot of money, on the children of the forest in a way we've never seen them before. You know, so it, it all makes the fact that it, you can that, that I can tell that story purely from the Hollywood Reporter articles and press releases suggests to me that there's something to all of that. Did it happen like I just suggested? Probably not. Well, there's I also a whole other. There's a Bob Iger quote that's being attached to a lot of these Benioff and Weiss stories that comes from a few years ago, but is essentially about how much Star Wars was too much. And he and him basically expressing some regret about doing both the new saga and the spinoff movies and having it be yeah. one a year. And he was just like, I think that we just went too much too soon. And in some ways, I think he was like, we didn't get all our ducks in a row creatively. And in some ways, I think he was like, it turns out people don't want this much Star Wars right now. Maybe. You know, I think that I'm, that's my read on it. My big question is like, why can't you do both of these shows? You know, it's it's sort of strange to me that you wouldn't be like, now is the time we were we are launching this service, HBO Max. Yeah. Why not have every 18 months there's a Game of Thrones show on or every year there's going to be an, another season of Game well, of Thrones? Or are they like, no, we want to do this over the next 10 years and we're going to let House of the Dragon run its course and then we'll see where we're at and, and maybe we do a sequel to the actual Game of Thrones show. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't think it's that. I think that, you, I'm glad you brought that up because to me, the, the, the thing that is just the most shocking, not from a creative perspective, but sticking with that sort of shareholder marketplace perspective, 
is I just can't believe the lost time because of this. Because the show that they're not going forward with was a pilot. But still, they very smartly put all these things into development when the other show wasn't over. Precisely yeah. so there wouldn't be a gap. Now, there's going to be a gap. Now, can they afford that gap? Sure, of course. But it must have been pretty bad or disappointing or not at all what people thought they were getting to just scuttle it. Because this other show, which they've now given a straight-to-series order to, nothing's been filmed. No, I know. If you read George Martin's blog, he's like... Now comes the work of breaking story, hiring uh, actors, they, hiring a, a crew, they, picking locations. They've just, yeah, they've just started staffing it in terms of writers uh, in the last few weeks. I don't think so we're going to see this, this show all, until late twenty twenty one, mid twenty twenty one, maybe, or early twenty twenty one, depending how fast they they rush it and how well it turns out. Um, but yeah, and that's a big thing because they also announced. Look, things don't work out the way you plan them in anything, right? They're not exactly as you drew them up. But you have to think that that at some point in this birth cycle of HBO Max, when they targeted May 2020 or mid-2020 as their launch date, they were like, and we will launch with a new Game of Thrones show. Because of course you would. Yeah, so I can just, why don't I just rattle off? So HBO Max obviously had its big presentation this week. It's launching in 2020. May 2020, it'll cost $14.99 a month, depending on a bunch of different things. They're already offering like HBO Max for free with this, you know, and you you get discounts yeah. or you get it free. Here's just like I, I went through the the list of stuff. The list of stuff is a full few pages of scrolling on a on a website. It's HBO, TNT, TBS, obviously all the affiliated channels. Their libraries to, for the most part. So you get the entire HBO library. There will also be classic movies curated by Turner Classic, Friends. And then just, I'm just, this is literally just like picking random ones. Shows from Denis Villeneuve, Ridley Scott, mm-hmm. Issa Rae, mm-hmm. Michael Mann, Patrick Somerville, Luca Guadagino, Mindy Kaling, Paul Feig, a Lupita Nyong'o adaptation of the Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie Americana book, mm-hmm. Melissa McCarthy, a thriller about flight attendants starring Kaylee Cuoco. Love to see her back on screen. A Steven Soderbergh movie, a Derek C. in France and Mark Ruffalo adaptation of a Wally Lamb book, a Kate Winslet cop show, a Joss Whedon show, a Richard Price show, a Perry Mason reboot from Robert Downey Jr. starring Matthew Reese, and a Philip Roth adaptation from David Simon, and that's like one one-hundredth of what they announced. Yeah, and, and, and some of that, you know, is just HBO's upcoming development slate, like the Perry Mason show and uh, the David Simon Plot Against America show. Some of that was new news. Some of it was things being folded in. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's it's wild. And underneath all that, actually, you mentioned Friends, but one of the more interesting subplots to watch as everyone is just caking up, basically, and, and squatting up is actually the thing I meant to say in terms of just getting their team ready for the, the, these wars to come. You know what the biggest thing in that entire press release was? That HBO Max outbid Hulu for South Park. Yep. That's actually the meat and potatoes day-to-day how people engage with streaming services stuff that makes the difference that makes or breaks an entire company i mean that's why they paid the money they paid for friends to take it away from netflix that's why universal did the same thing with its own show the office for peacock that's how you get people to continue to watch stuff and that's of course why things are looking pretty i don't want to say dire but they're definitely looking a little bit foggier for netflix because you're pulling the spine out and then expecting people to pay a certain amount of money for 
the really good David Chang show, and also maybe they'll make another Master of None, and then strange, it's sort of a strange popery without that backdrop. That, yeah. that I keep using different metaphors to say spine or baseline or whatever. The fact that they paid a ton of money to get South Park away from Hulu, I mean, look, Hulu makes really cool original shows, and they're in it. You know, they won an Emmy for Handmaid's Tale, and uh, we've been raving about looking for Alaska. There's a lot of other cool stuff that they've got coming up. Honestly, I still think, and I, I have no numbers to back this up, but I still think that if you ask a random people about Hulu, they're like, yeah, I watch South Park there, or I watch Fresh Off the Boat the day after it airs there. That's yeah, the I think that, that it's still like back. the thing that people use to watch a lot of network shows the day after. Yeah. And I think that'll change over time. I think that when it starts to get bundled with ESPN Plus and Disney, and when you can finally wrap your arms around that, I think it'll become a lot more significant. But the HBO Max thing that you're alluding to is they are making a volume play. They are they are not maybe not the Netflix killer, but the reason why I had to take a breath and then keep going as I listed off all the stuff that they were doing, which is not even says almost nothing about like the kids programming that they have and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. They are a fully formed portal you you, you're not gonna if you could have just hbo max and live a happy and healthy television watching life they are their place to be tv yes you know it is a place to go to watch sesame street which you can do to watch big bang theory and the new david simon miniseries and new game of thrones series so it's really grabbing major pillars of everyone's definition of what TV was for the last 20 years and putting it under one place, which is so completely the opposite of what Apple is doing to make it seem like we shouldn't even be comparing them because they're not even in the same business. Apple does not have the library. And so one thing that people are doing is they scratch their heads and give Apple the benefit of the doubt because of all the money they have is who are they trying to compete with? Are they just spending some of the trillion dollars they have on hand in cash to keep things shiny on the Apple TV homepage or to put up billboards in their Apple stores to say that stars like, is this, is the morning show essentially like getting JLo to have an iPod in her Jenny on the block video? I will tell you this. It's one thing that is not uh, like subtle in the, in the Apple shows is the use of Apple products. (laughs) Yeah. Right. They, they definitely like the first 10 minutes of morning show. I think every character looks at their iPhone, which in real life, people who do that job in like work in journalism look at their iPhone a lot, but it is not subtle. The only time I haven't well, seen people use them is in the Jason yeah. Momoa show that is set in some sort of like Stone Age. So I don't think it's, or Fair. I guess Dickinson, she doesn't really use her iPhone that much either. But, but, but Chris, that's like, joke. I'll tell you something that happens in, uh, no spoilers, but I'll tell you something that happens in episode seven of USA's upcoming drama series Briar Patch is Rosario Dawson looks at her iPhone. Yeah, like that's just that's just TV. <laughs> that's just good stuff. Um, that's just that's just compelling entertainment for the whole family. That's like Hamlet um, looking at the skull, man. Come on. Did I did I mention January twenty twenty? Um, but what I'm saying is that it, all the stories are pitching these all as equal combatants on the field, but they're not all playing. I don't think they're all playing on the same field, but let alone playing the same sport. You know, Apple is going to survive as a company if its television original content play doesn't pan out. Yes. It is much more existential for these legacy companies like Warner, like Universal, who are using their experience and with making content and the depth of their libraries as like the final stand against whatever tech wave is coming. 
And so to, to pair them off against each other is interesting and, and contextually relevant because they're all kind of launching around the same time and no one really knows how it's going to shake out in terms of an ordinary person's paycheck and how much of it is going where and to whom. But it's not, the stakes are not the same for all of them. No, it's really not. So I think on Monday what we'll do is we'll talk about Watchmen and then we'll also talk a little bit about at least Morning and, Show. And can we, by the way, just say, just to, to, put, a, to put a bow on this conversation, um, I think one of the reasons you and I enjoy Watchmen so much, separate and apart from whether it's the writing or the performances, is what you said a, a few moments ago, which is that it feels weirdly radical for there to be such a untethered remix of IP in this world that we've been sketching out over the last 40 minutes of this conversation, that the, con- the convergence of this particular piece of IP, Watchmen, which has always been kind of thorny and, and self-contained, Damon's talent and also relative power and standing, the moment that HBO came to him and Warner came to him vis-a-vis their own launching, their streaming services and everything, we might not see this kind of thing again, right? Because he is certainly not beholden to the fans of the original comic book or the fans of the Zack Snyder movie. It doesn't sound like he's setting up a series that is going going to run for nine years and be a key driver of cell phones for the next decade. I uh, it honestly just, feels like a show that it feels like a show that he would want to watch, and it, it it doesn't really it it's obviously like for people who've never read the comics and don't have any idea about like that world at all, it's a confusing watch. And for people who are coming to it as comic lovers and are waiting for their like their breadcrumb trail. It's probably a frustrating watch. If you just go and accept it on its own terms, though, it's I think it's thrilling TV. And that is ultimately is like, will we ever get a Game of Thrones like that? Will we ever get a Star Wars like that? And I think I think we were close with Last Jedi. I think that there's elements of Last Jedi that yeah. are like, this is somebody who's really making their own thing within this playground. But what are the lasting lessons of that movie? They're, they're still TBD. Will we ever see Ryan Johnson's trilogy? I'm not optimistic about it. Again, based on no information, I just not optimistic about it. I think that Disney correctly points to the enormous worldwide box office grosses of that movie. There's, it's very hard to argue that that movie was was a financial failure. And you and I and other people we like and know and respect look at it as a the opposite, as a huge creative win. But that narrative that like he he pushed too hard on something and upset people has settled in to a degree, right? And even if people aren't saying it, we are certainly seeing the results of that response and that fear across the entire galaxy, to make another bad analogy, the entire galaxy <laughs> of major billion-dollar franchise IP. Yeah. Well, we'll, t- we'll obviously be talking more about this on Monday. Andy, thank you for calling me in from a sunny parking lot. Chris, do you think that people who I just realized are working behind the window that I've been yelling at you in front of have enjoyed my half of this conversation? <laughs> <laughs> Can I check in with them? Is it the writer's room for House of the Dragon? <laughs> I mean, it very well may be. This is a very shadowy complex that I'm a part of. I'll talk I to you. I think I'm just going to slink back in. All right, man. I'll talk to you on Monday. Great job, Francis. Bye. So good. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Watchmen. Watchmen has come to HBO, inspired by the groundbreaking graphic novel of the same name. Damon Lindelof's Watchmen is set in an alternate history of present-day America, where the lines between vigilantes and mass crime fighters have permanently blurred. Starring Regina King and Jeremy Irons, Watchmen airs Sundays at 9 p.m. only on HBO. 